Our second reading this morning is the Christian scriptures, the Gospel of St. Luke, selected verses from chapter 15. Listen for the word of God. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the paws that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up. And go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands.
Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Let me offer my own good morning, and thank you very much, Jeff, for asking me to come back. I'm very glad to be back with all of you to celebrate worship. And I also want to note that uh, it's the beginning of Women's Heritage Month, and it's Celebrate Women's Day within the PCUSA. So even though it is somebody who identifies as male preaching today, I am very aware of the women in my life and the women in our biblical tradition that stand as examples to us. And I take very seriously preaching on a day on which we honor them. <clears throat> One of the things that I really love about Jesus' earthly ministry is that he knew we needed stories because we are storytelling creatures. We always have been as far back as we can remember because stories allow us to imagine ourselves into a different situation to sympathize or be scared or participate in a romance. And it's true for novels. And it's certainly true with parables like this one, where the explicit intent is to teach us something. Stories make it easier to learn because we find ourselves and find other people in it. Jesus teaches this parable because people are coming to him, complaining about his behavior, his life choices, if you will, eating and associating with people that the majority culture doesn't approve of and frankly judges. This parable is one of three in the chapter and each gets longer and each takes us further into the moral precepts that Jesus is attempting to impart. But for that to work, the story has to be alive and let's face it, this parable is so well known, even in popular culture, that I think it's become a little dry, maybe a little lifeless. So today, let's do what we can to bring our imagination and our faith to this parable and see if we can make it live again. I hope to start you on that road after you leave here and go back to the story of your life by talking about three different little facets or turns we could put on this particular story. First, let's talk about the younger son. We meet him as this brash, self-involved, greedy, wild child. And perhaps there's some schadenfreude in us, some secret delight at watching him 
this selfish child fall all the way to the bottom. He experiences complete dissolution. He comes from a family that can afford to give him his inheritance early, and he squanders the whole thing in no time flat, in a way that would have driven the Pharisees and the scribes to direct condemnation. But he comes to himself, and what a great phrase. He is in a place where the life has literally dried up around him, a famine-struck field. He's hopeless, in a hopeless place, but I think sometimes we're so focused on him getting home to the waiting arms of forgiveness, even though he doesn't yet expect it, that we forget he does come to himself. He picks himself up. In my former work with people struggling with addiction, one of the moments I really treasured as I walked with them was the moment when someone could pick themselves up and say, a change really has to happen. Because whatever help comes from the outside, whatever people can stand by you in that dark place, the change originates from the inside. Every addict counselor will tell you this. No change is possible unless you pick yourself up and decide that something has to change. And that's what I think we sometimes forget about the younger son. It's not just about the forgiveness as wonderful as that is, the literal open arms with which he is greeted, but about a person who sees the road they've been on, sees its failure, and decides to walk a different one, even when this one leads him home. He gets his whole sense of hope back and his sense of self in that process. So ask yourself, where are you in that version of the story? And where is Jesus? Don't forget why Jesus is sharing this story, because some people feel he is wrong to be associating with sinners and other undesirables. So when the younger son is there in that dry and dusty field, broken by the weight of his poor decisions, outcast and friendless and starving. Friends, this is the wrong kind of person Jesus spent all his time with. He would have been right there beside the struggling son, eating with a sinner, supporting him on making a choice and a path toward wholeness and reconciliation. Jesus positions himself that way next to the son who for all his failures for the downward course he's been on picks himself up, exerts his sense of self and I think we've all had a moment like that to one degree or another when you look around and you think how did I get here? What have I been doing? And that's where we can find Jesus in those moments in our own lives. Next let's talk about the elder son. I kind of identify with the elder son. <laughs> and it's sort of easy to see him as what? Just sort of a sore loser? Um, certainly hard-hearted, right? Unwilling to see the progress his brothers made and instead focused on himself. But I don't think it's that easy. Instead, the elder son reminds me of someone else from the New Testament. Hardworking, faithful, and frustrated when their value doesn't seem to be appreciated. He sort of sounds like Martha. If at some time in our lives, in one degree or another, we can identify with the plight of the younger son, there are definitely times when we can identify with the eldest as well. When you put your heart and belief in something, only for the powers that be, even your own family, to seem to ignore you simply because you're doing what you ought to, 
quietly doing the right thing, true in families, true in work, in relationships, who hasn't actually felt like the eldest son? Overlooked and underappreciated and then spoken out of that in bitterness and hurt. Ask yourself where Jesus is in the story of the eldest son. He doesn't mince words about the behavior of his brother, but in his harsh words, what I mostly hear is a lot of pain. And what I certainly hear is Jesus in the response of his father. For whatever reason, the eldest son has felt unappreciated and overlooked for years, maybe his whole life. So I think the words of his father are coming to him at the exact right time. Son, you are not overlooked. I see what you've done. I see you. That's why everything I have is yours. You are a part of me. If the eldest son has been feeling this way for years, he hasn't heard his father's love. And I think Jesus is standing there in those words that says, I'm sorry you didn't realize what you mean to me. And finally, let's talk about the people in the background. Because if we're going to make this story come alive in our place and time, we have to talk about the people in the shadows of this story that actually drive it forward. I appreciate the NRSV translation that we use today because it doesn't shy away from the reality that these were not all hired hands. These were slaves. And it's a disturbing reality to point out. But another way that that means that we have to read this story is from their perspective. And from their view, this is a well-to-do family with enough money to spare to keep their possessions running and happy after they've given half of it to the son, talking money and possessions and inheritances, things these people will never have. It's rich people fighting. What's interesting to me about the people that actually live in the shadows of this story is both sons have a chance to engage with the reality of their privileged position. The youngest son is forced to take a terribly menial job, the kind he would have undoubtedly ordered his own workers to do without a second thought when money was flush. But he gets to leave that terrible work and go home. Nobody else gets to do that. And the eldest son says he feels like he's been toiling like a slave for years. But you know what? He really hasn't. <laughs> he is part of that family. He owns half of his father's possessions. He has money and power. So this is a whole different version of the story of the prodigal son, no? So ask yourself, where is Jesus in this story? The people here are truly underprivileged, stigmatized, minoritized, overlooked. This is also a story about class and privilege and power and gender. There are no named women in this text. Once again, the motive for Jesus telling this parable comes back to our minds. The powers that be don't like Jesus associating with all these religious and social undesirables these dregs were supposed to disregard. In other words, those who are silenced and oppressed. 
And that is always where you can find the Christ. Right there in the field and the kitchen. Making his meal just like they do, just like we do, out of the scraps from this privileged table. And saying, because he is the Christ, with all the energy of the prophet that he was, there must be a brighter, better world possible for the least of these. In our sacred texts, what I love about them is that all of these stories, all these complex overlap narratives, all of these different ways we can choose to view the people that we read about and resurrect every time we tell the story, is that they're all happening at once. They're all alive and active, and that's what gives them life. They're true when we read them because they're true in our own lives. Our lives are this complex, messy, overlapping narrative of success and failure and privilege and oppression. Not just ours, but the people, the web that we surround ourselves with. We get hurt, we're greedy, we're part of a marginalized community, we ignore the oppressed. Some of us are the least of these. In different ways, all of us need to be forgiven for something, and all of us have something we are working to forgive. Hopefully, this story has a little bit of new life in it now. Three new complications, three new blessings in this parable. Perhaps like the young son, we are trying, we're standing beside someone trying to walk back into the arms of hope. Perhaps like the eldest son, we're waiting to receive the words that let us know we are loved and seen. Perhaps we have been silenced and held down and operating in the shadows and are looking for a way to walk out into the light, into a better life. This parable hopefully swells with that new life when we ask ourselves, who am I and where is my savior in this story? That's not just how we find our way into a parable. That's how we find our way into our own world. This is the narrative we are actually living. When we are abandoned or scared, guilt-ridden, hurt, hopeful, angry, fighting for something better, in the midst of those seasons of drought and famine, we walk into our own lives asking, who am I and where is my Savior in my story? There's always hope for new life by looking for where your Savior is for you in this moment and in this challenge. Because the amazing thing about him is that he is present everywhere with us all. Amen.